0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Tall Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Handling Cost. Midway Gardens. The State of Art House Cinema. And Japan's A-Bomb.
1: Hey, Robin, what's better than dinosaurs?
0: Hmm,
1: I don't think there is anything better than dinosaurs. How about dinosaurs plus 5e? Sold! Well, get ready, because the 5e prehistoric campaign setting, Plain Gia, is on Kickstarter now from Atlas Games. Wait. Didn't they make Nyambi and Northern Crown 2? Yes, for 3rd edition, plus Penumbra, so you know it's gonna be excellent. Tell me more! Plain Gia is the prehistoric fantasy campaign setting for 5e, offering endless adventures in a vast, brutal world. Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe. It has everything you love about 5e, but reimagined for a primal, prehistoric world. Plus dinosaurs! Live on Kickstarter until October 7th. Search for Plane Gea. That's Plane as an Airplane, then G-E-A. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the Gaming Hut. And Peter Frampton has got his guitar out and he's wailing on it. And in lieu of uh, Doritos, apparently someone went to White Castle because there's a bunch of sliders here. Yes, it's time once more for our recurring series on the axes and sliders. You're welcome, everyone, of game design.
0: Uh, Yes, Peter's very happy that there's going to be a a musical analogy. Exactly. To get us started and hope maybe at the end we'll have a better terminology that does not reference another art form, but... We'll see what we can
1: do about this. See what we got. Right now, uh, we have been doing axes of game design that I have thrown off idly, and now Robin has actually put thought into it, like a sucker. I
0: wasn't even in an airport at the time. Right,
1: and has a new... um, uh, You didn't just go out to the airport for old times' sake, just sit around in your mask and then leave again?
0: No, it's nothing I love more than sitting in an airport.
1: Yep. Well, try sitting in an airport unable to breathe. That's the best kind. Anywho, you're newest axes axis of gaming design is handling cost and you have appended to this two types of handling cost violin and harmonica and i believe that i'm going to let you carry this metaphor as far as your creaking back will allow you robin right
0: and as I mentioned last episode, my uh, sliders, my spectra, as it were, are the things that I um, actually grapple with and think about and wrestle with in the course of a game design. So, uh, so handling cost is, I think, the easier concept to grasp here, which is when you introduce a, a rules subset, a rule subsystem, the question is, how much work is it for the GM and players to implement it? And is it worth that amount of work? And I struggled to find an abstract uh, way of expressing that, but it's, it's, it's not really a full opposition because it's a, is it worth the payoff to do this? So it's not complexity versus simplicity, it's what's the payoff of the additional complexity? And so I finally have landed for the moment, and maybe Ken, you can fix this, mm-hmm. on violin versus harmonica. So the easiest instrument to learn And the easiest to play and get something out of is the harmonica. However, what you get out of the harmonica is harmonica music. Now, there are some great harmonica players in the blues tradition. But in general, the harmonica, you really have to work to get colors out of it. You have to manipulate the, the microphone. Whereas the violin is one of the most difficult instruments to master. So in this analogy, it has a high handling cost. And you have to work at it for a long time to get a payoff from it. But the payoff from a violin is ultimately commensurate with its difficulty. And some of the greatest, finest, subtlest, most moving music in the world is played on the violin in all sorts of different traditions as well. So something with a low handling cost is something that requires no additional thought. You don't have to look at a chart. Maybe you have to roll a die. Uh, You don't have to look at your character sheet. It's very simple. It is essentially invisible in play. Something with a handling cost is sort of in the moderate range of, oh, well, okay, This I have to look up a chart, or I have to do a little bit of simple arithmetic, or I have to uh, pull out a game component and use it. So pulling out your battle mat and situating all of your miniatures on it has a higher handling cost than Theater of the Mind style combat. But for many people who uh, enjoy that and all of the tactical advantages that it provides, that handling cost has a sufficiently high payoff. In fact, it's fun to handle those things. So the more fun it is to deal with the little widgets and elements of something, the sort of the lower the cost of handling, it becomes less a handling cost, I guess, than a handling benefit, I suppose, because it's fun to mess with that stuff. So uh, a recent example of that in my own design work are the shock and injury cards in the Yellow King role-playing game and its underlying quick shock stream of the gumshoe rules. And that introduces little cards, uh, which are essentially not really playing cards because you never, like, shuffle a deck or draw them randomly. They're actually handouts little mini handouts with the form factor of a card there are additional complicating elements which is you can the books create new cards all the time and encourages you to create cards but you have to give these handouts to the player uh, whether you are physically uh, you've taken a uh, pdf page from the book and printed it out and you're reaching across the table to give it to your player or as i prefer to do you are serving up an electronic image of that card on a Slack channel or, or what have you, uh, with everybody having their devices open and play. But whether you're doing a physical card or a virtual card, that has a certain amount of effort involved in it. However, the it also has a handling benefit in terms of people, when they receive the cards, they're excited. In this game, you also are excited to get rid of those cards. You actually don't want to have them, so you get an exciting uh, thrill of uh, when you get it, you can get a sense of achievement when you get rid of it and people really like them. They have a high emotional resonance. So even though they're a pain in the butt to manage, they have a high handling cost. They also have a high emotional benefit. So the cards in quick shock are violin, whereas the uh, use of investigative abilities where as in all gumshoe games, you, Uh, have the ability you perhaps name the ability or perhaps the GM intuits it and you look for information and you get it that is the lowest handling cost rule you can possibly imagine you Mm -hmm. might have to look at your character sheet to remind yourself which abilities you have but other than that essentially zero handling cost so investigative abilities in yellow king harmonica quick shot cards violin what do you
1: think and there are so many fewer abilities in yellow king than an even regular gumshoe that it's an even lower handling cost there because you've only got five or six abilities instead of 10 or 20
0: right and that was uh, very consciously the point since i was introducing this other thing with a higher handling cost i wanted to reduce the handling cost of the entire rules apparatus and so simplified that as much as i can and also simplified character generation so that you're often purchasing kits uh, where you just, here's my investigative abilities, here's my general abilities, two package deals, glunking together, and you're ready to go because here's this whole other aspect I'm introducing. So I want to make the rest of it even easier to uh, manipulate.
1: Right. I guess the first thing, looking all the way back, is that you've set out two corners of the handling cost diagram, but it's a, it's a quadrant, right? There's low handling cost, low uh benefit which is your harmonica and there is high handling cost high benefit which is your violin one also assumes that there is a high handling cost low benefit which would be like i don't know the benjamin franklin glass harmonica right well, well you take that out you don't get yeah. that in your rules but but if we're talking about axes on which we analyze game design yes we would have to say maybe that is present in and that some people's violin is very much other people's glass harmonica. And then in theory, there would also be, let's say, a drum that is a low handling cost, and that it's relatively simple to learn the drums, but you can also do remarkably subtle and effective things with the drums uh, once you're pretty decent at it. And so that would be the low handling cost, high payout sort of rule. Well, I
0: I would argue that, and I'm biased, that investigative rules work that yeah. way right right that they have no handling costs but they still have a high benefit in fact they drive the entire
1: <laughs> bus right yeah so but i mean but that just means that you're not actually doing violin versus harmonica in your own design you're always aiming for the violin drum column the high payout whereas as a designer you obviously have to be aware whether consciously or unconsciously that the risk is of a game system that is too simple to maintain anyone's attention so it's forgotten in play or that it is so simple as to be generic and abstract and does not inform or further play and so that would be your uh, theoretical harmonica end of the spectrum and obviously we could sit here all day and come up with examples of rules that uh impose a high handling cost and also don't particularly Produce anything very fun out the back end, and that would be virtually every set of grappling rules ever written, for example.
0: <laughs> yes. Right? Uh, the, the much maligned fourth edition DD had the best grappling rules, which I guess yeah. is what cursed it
1: uh-huh. to, to wander the world forever. Yeah,
0: it was a paragraph,
1: man. So, you know, in terms of parameters, I think we have to always be aware that the other case exists. And the question being, given that players at the table are wildly different in their degree of, and uh, in, in many, many ways, but specifically in the degree of time and effort they want to commit to your game system, I would argue that, in general, the higher the handling cost, the lower the payout, just because fewer people are going to stick in and learn the violin, even if you've written the violin rules instead of the glass harmonica rules, right?
0: Yeah, the, people are going to top out at a certain point. No matter what the emotional benefit, so that if you have something that's you know wildly exciting, and I guess here we're sort of verging into describing board game rules mm-hmm. in the last hour, but requires an entire hour to set up at the beginning, and somehow everybody has to take part in the setup, you don't have your most uh, enthusiastic person doing all the setup. That would be a, a a nope for a lot of people, and that of course is the question that you're always navigating because. There's no one taste that you're shooting for. That pe- different people have different tastes, and as we, as I always say, it is interesting to see the ch- tastes of gamers, including the same gamers, change over time. And uh, things I think are moving more toward the casual. So these days, you think a lot more about handling cost than you would, you know, d- devising your starship battles uh, system. Uh, for a space opera game in 1985,
1: and then the other uh, pushback that someone might say is, "Well, that's you just said learning curve over again, but with musical instruments in it."
0: But learning curve is next week,
1: Ken. Oh, learning curve is next. Learning week. Learning curve is different uh, because, because uh, even once you've learned it, you still have to do a lot of fiddly things.
0: Exactly. In so, a violin so example, the, yeah. So uh, again, to the quick shot cards, uh, high handling costs, low learning curve.
1: Right. In fact, because they, have they are less very simple curve
0: than a lot of other similar rules, because. In this case, it's like you don't have to look up the drowning rules in the book. The drowning rules are
1: on your are right. card. Yeah, because the card um, says you're drowning. Right. Right.
0: Uh, so it's it's so uh, that's why I've separated these out. And that's why I think it's uh, we're going to the trouble to look at all these different oppositions, even though they cross over each other, because mm-hmm. it's almost as if Ken role playing game design as well as running is an
1: art mm-hmm. and
0: not a science. And if again, science, when you say, you, argue
1: you know, uh, color and balance are two qualities of painting. Well, those obviously overlap because one of the important elements of balance is color balance. So there we are. Right.
0: Because if you open up an image editing software program, there's a whole bunch of different sliders,
1: <laughs> lots of little sliders.
0: <laughs> and some of them do kind of the same things. And, you and they, know and they many have many something did.
1: of a high yeah. handling cost. I'll tell you that. Right. So the uh, question then is, is there, Uh, a guideline that the individual game designer can use on the principle of some things take more handling. So, for example, one can certainly imagine a starship combat game that is uh, settled by flipping coins, a Prince Valiant starship handling game, if you will. But I think most people who are interested in playing games with starship combat would feel that that is too low that that is I want to handle something I want to handle something I want to shoot the phasers and activate the shields and do all the stuff and so certain rules sets seem to impose a higher handling cost on the designer in order to feed what you might assume the median player is and the interesting thing that I've noticed amongst designers is that guys who are really into martial arts really love technical grappling rules. And I think you can extrapolate that to everything so that if you are really into sword fights, your temptation is to impose a high handling cost because you are the guy who sees the magic violin that a sword fight can become, whereas the median player may be not even at the level of the Princess Bride sword fight is better than another sword fight, but at the level of, who won the sword fight? Was it me or the orc? We can flip coins for that. I don't need to know. And that is the, uh, as you say, the artistic element of it is designing toward an audience and the self-knowledge from the designer that the thing that you want to endlessly pick nits in is not necessarily what the universe wants to endlessly pick nits in the universe of players. And one of the great things about working for GURPS, when I wrote GURPS Cabal, which was basically cover for my book of endlessly picking knits in western ceremonial magic i had a rich and robust tradition in which gurps would let anyone pick any knits they wanted eventually and by now there are there are knits to pick about shooting a gun, which in basic GURPS is the simplest thing imaginable. I'm
0: very excited that GURPS macrame finally came out.
1: Right. And, um uh, well, you know, we've all been waiting for a long time, but uh, a lot of us were worried that uh, GURPS crochet was going to suffer as a result, and it didn't.
0: Well, it, it had to be good. It had to really be tested with the target audience.
1: Right. And it had to hold up all those little wooden balls. So the, the job of some games is self-understood, and obviously, GURPS, you can make the strategic argument, that it went way too far down that road, but that the presence of these niggling rules then provides other game designers, at at worst case, a warning, you know, don't go here, (laughs) but also a, okay, this has been broken down to this, I can abstract those rules more easily than I can abstract all of uh, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, and I'll still have something that feels a little more more robust as a a higher fun handling cost than just uh, roll your spell. Did you win? Did you lose? Right? Right.
0: And uh, to sort of uh, cap this off, this is certainly a thing that you are testing during outside play testing because you probably, you know, to go back to your example of the uh, martial artist who wants a very detailed, real seeming martial arts system with lots of handling, uh, maybe get back feedback from all sorts of play groups that is like, well, this is very involved, and the involvement that we put into it didn't seem to pay off into fun. And so that's very much what you're testing. And you, and if you don't know that something you're submitting t- to your playtesters has a high handling cost, I don't know what you're doing. But you may be a little bit in denial, mm-hmm. you know, but generally I, I know it's, well, this is a little extra handling. Is this going to be worth it? And uh, the comments in the case of the shot cards were, this is a little extra handling but it was worth it. And that's what you're looking for. And so I guess that's why this is a, a quadrant or a thing where you're trying to hit a sweet spot of two different things hitting in the middle. It's almost like a technical part and an emotional payoff part. And you're trying to get those two streams exactly together.
1: Yeah. And that I think that you perhaps overestimate the degree to which a designer, especially a first time designer, or a designer who's really in love with the subject matter understands that it is a high handling cost that they are rather feeling frustrated all all the other low handling cost ones and are figuring now something's finally got it right so you know once you've done four or five games yeah you begin to get that in that intuition that this one is a little more complex it's a little fiddlier. it's uh maybe more work than the fun is uh, coming back out the other side but certainly for a first-time designer you know, designing a ridiculously wrong-headed game that feeds your fanaticism is almost like the rite of passage. And maybe the kids well, today don't this do is why that. You and I are
0: two, two sides of the same coin, because yeah. I'm saying be smart, and you're saying don't be stupid.
1: Don't be stupid, yes. I'm just saying, which which advice is e- is um, uh, easier to take is, I guess, the, the great question of all advice. And once we've reached the great question, it's obviously time to stop answering it and move on through a great ad into another great hut. Dracula is not a novel. We know this. It's the after-action report of a failed British intelligence attempt to recruit a vampire. Yeah,
0: yeah, we've been through all
1: this. And the Dracula Dossier Director's Handbook has more secrets, more dangers, more mysteries.
0: For players and directors to explore together, we did a year's worth of ads about it. But it doesn't have Varna. It doesn't have the Ring of Dracula either, or 13th Age-style icons, or Bibliomancy.
1: Or a Hand of Glory, or Red Mercury, or Hard-Won Advice and Actual Play Reports.
0: If only someone could gather up all that material that you and gareth wrote after the fact
1: someone has you made gar do it didn't you we've assembled gar has assembled the cuttings from the dossier have been assembled into a 50-page pdf Available free with a special offer from the Pell Store. Just buy a print copy of the Director's Handbook Standalone.
0: Or the Dracula Dossier Core Bundle, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print.
1: Or the Dracula Dossier Starter Kit Bundle, the Knight's Black Agents Core Book, the Director's Handbook and Dracula Unredacted in print. Get
0: 25% off any of those print bundles, plus the PDF versions and the cuttings from the Dossier PDF, entirely free with the code VAMP2021.
1: And don't worry, original Kickstarter backers, the Cuttings PDF will mystically appear in your Pell store bookshelves without further expenditure.
0: Do nothing, Kickstarter backers.
1: All others use code VAMP2021 for plenty of savings and lots of cuttings.
0: We look across the plain of huts and one hut, towers above the other, It goes high, high into the air. Its lines are elegant and it has a arrogant shadow that it casts across all of the others because this, my friends, is the architecture hut. And this time around, we've gone all the way up to the top of the architecture hut to the uh, grand mezzanine uh, and the lookout. And uh, we have a meeting beloved patron backer Anders Gabrielson who wants the skinny on Chicago's midway gardens, because kind if there's one thing we've learned from the sorts of questions. We get nothing interests our listeners more than defunct amusement parks.
1: <laughs> That's right. They love it. They can't get enough of it. It is their way,
0: right? Because it's, it's like fun, except it doesn't exist anymore.
1: Right? Yes. It's, it's dead fun. The best kind of fun. Um, Okay. Well, uh, it, it said Chicago right on it. And Midway is the Midway Plaisance, the big, uh, street that is the south end of my neighborhood, Hyde Park. And the Midway Gardens were, as you say, a, uh, they were not an amusement park, Robin. I, we have to stop you there. They were on the site of an old amusement park, the Sans Souci amusement park that, uh, had fallen into disrepair. And, uh, the sort of conventional story is that a guy named Edward C. Waller Jr. owns the San amusement park. He's picked it up for a song. And he hires Frank Lloyd Wright to remodel it in 1913. And because he has hired Frank Lloyd Wright, Frank Lloyd Wright says, oh, you don't want what you said you want. What you want is what I want to build. <laughs> yes, yeah, be arrogantly towering. Why don't you bulldoze your San amusement park, which is garbage and everyone hates it, and build... A summer winter concert garden like they have in Europe. Uh, we've got half a million Germans in Chicago. They would love a concert garden like they would see in Munich or Berlin. And besides, I always lose at whack-a-mole and I hate whack-a-mole. I hate it, hate it, hate it. No carnival games. Now, in Frank Lloyd Wright's memoir, In Fairness to the Greatest Architect that Has Ever Lived, his theory is Waller came up with the idea of wanting a German indoor-outdoor park came to Frank Lloyd Wright and said, please build me a German indoor outdoor park. And Frank Lloyd Wright said, well, I don't know. And Waller (laughs) says, no, I can buy the San Souci land. It's garbage. Everyone hates it. It's broken and terrible. I need you, Frank Lloyd Wright, to bring civility and beauty to the great city of Chicago. And Frank Lloyd Wright said, well, bring me the surveys of the San Souci land. Come back next week and I'll see what I can do. And because I am a genius, I had produced the magnificent Midway Gardens. Thank you very much. That's the Frank Lloyd Wright version. Now, the Midway Gardens, in fact, uh, were under construction and being designed at at the time that uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's house, Taliesin, burned down. So he kiped off and left Adler and Sullivan to finish the design and construction supervision. So when it opened in 1914, it had some Sullivan-esque quality to it in my mind. But the basic approach is that if you think of two large overlapping rectangles, and I do mean large, like 183 meters on the long side large, one of them is the summer garden, one of them is the winter garden. The winter garden has a big five different levels of construction. It's about three stories tall. The summer garden, of course, is backed by an enormous stage, so it's about two city blocks in size. Um, And then... Throughout the Winter Garden and Summer Garden, there are arcades and logias and little areas where you can look out over the festivities, and there's a dance floor for the kids and uh, many, many establishments. There's a tavern right off the street so that as you come in, uh, you can immediately get drinks, which is, uh Frank Lloyd Wright gives Weller the credit for thinking that up, so good for you, Frank Lloyd Wright. And then there is a kitchen that is underneath the uh, Midway Gardens and is... Uh, communicates with every terrace by hidden tunnels, uh, because Frank Lloyd Wright. Uh, it is built in a sort of a Central America meets Samurai Japan looking style with lots of cantilevers, flat walls. It's of yellow brick and gray concrete, but the gray concrete is decorated. It is carved and patterned, and so it winds up looking... Uh, remarkably beautiful. And when your eye hits it, what you see is the sort of intimacy of the design. You don't see the fact that it's this enormous sprawling concrete plaza.
0: Right. And presumably it's, it's sculpted, but it's molded rather than you don't carve concrete.
1: Right? Yeah, right. Yeah. It's, it's patterned and then they put it in a mold and and put the bricks up or the facing up that way. Um, And then there is also concrete sculptures called sprites that are little uh, humanoid forms that are all over, you know, the loggias and the and the walkways and everything, and they're sort of looking down at you or up at you and as like you go by. Art
0: deco looking, sort of geometric muses,
1: exactly, and they're uh, designed by Wright and sculpted by a guy named Alfonso Ianelli. and there's about a hundred of those, and they're all over. Uh, one area is three levels; the other area is is five levels. Um, in the Winter Garden, there is a hallway, a casino. Two balconies on the bar, private banquet halls, uh, rooms for smaller concerts, cigar stand, uh, swimming pools, dance floor, as I mentioned, and, uh, gardens all around it. So the notion is that you will go and have a civilized night out because you are, uh, rich and fancy, or at least upper middle class and fancy, or middle class, but aspiring to be fancy. And that that is the goal of the Midway Gardens is to do all that. Well, in a piece of evidence that maybe makes my version more correct than frank lloyd wright's version waller can't afford to run the midway gardens as established he tries to get a syndicate together to own it there isn't enough money coming in even though you have like Anna Pavlova comes out and does dances there. There's a German
0: population and beer and it's still not making money.
1: It's still not making money and there is um uh, uh the National Symphony Orchestra played there under the baton of Max Bendix. It's a big classy establishment. It is beautiful if you look at the uh, the photographs. It's it's a gorgeous piece of work, but it is that as you say even with Germans and beer making money and part of it is because guess when you don't want to try selling German-style beer garden in America, that's right, 1914. World War One has come <laughs> along, and suddenly no one wants to hang out with Germans. Um There's a big uh, whoop-de-doo about it. Chicago, obviously, is more uh, pro-German and anti-hated British than other cities, because it's got Germans and Irish. But still, the sort of um uh, Anglo establishment that runs the city does not necessarily flock to its cultural attraction. So in 1916... Yes, that's about the
0: same time that uh, Berlin, Ontario became uh, Kitchener, Ontario.
1: Right. And uh, Bismarck, North Dakota said, what? We're North Dakota. No one's going to get confused. But um, in 1916, Midway Gardens is sold to Schoenhofen Brewing Company on the Double Down Theory, I guess. And uh, it becomes the Edelweiss Garden. And they paint everything bright colors, which drives Frank Lloyd Wright insane. And they bring in Oompa Band's and probably the the whack-a-mole again. And he washes his hands of it, stalks off in a rage. Then the United States enters World War I, which, of course, makes the German beer garden theme an even dumber idea commercially. And then Prohibition hits. Uh, Prohibition basically is the nail in the coffin for the Schoenhofen Brewing Company. They sell it to a tire company called Dietrich Automotive, which then attempts to become a jazz dance hall. And for a while, it does okay, but Prohibition undermines the attraction of a jazz dance hall without liquor and so even though benny goodman at one point is playing in the house orchestra at the midway gardens it does finally go out of business with the great depression uh, in 1929 dietrich no doubt loses his shirt in the stock market has to unload midway gardens and then it is demolished and of course all frank lloyd wright websites Repeat the legend, which I'm afraid is probably a legend, that the demolition company went bankrupt trying to demolish it because it is so well built. I think possibly it's just a lot of concrete that's hard to demolish regardless, and I don't think the company went bankrupt, but it's a lovely story, and I did not check it on purpose. Right. Well, uh,
0: there's a bailout in that because I think the question of timing as to uh, when the demolition begins is, I, I think, the key to the... Elliptonic secret behind Midway Gardens because obviously at some point the original gardens became a repository for American prosperity. I'm sure that the uh, prosperity was located inside the sprites. And October 1929 is when the demolition commences, but it's also when the crash commences. So did the demolition, or at least the plans to demolish it, precede the crash and and therefore precipitate it in? You know, the history you might find in books, I don't know, but but the real history, Ken, on this show, it's pretty clear that the, the demolition is what triggered uh, the Great Crash of
1: 29. Right. That the, the fall of Midway Gardens was the fall of America. And to your theory that the power of America was within the sprites, the interesting thing is that uh, Alfonso Ianelli took a lot of the sprites and hid them as did the wrecking company, a guy named William J. Newman and company. William Newman took a lot of these sculptures and carried them off to the Wisconsin Dells, like a Visigoth. And then writes, uh, I believe his daughter bought some sprites from Newman and took them to Taliesin West. So there's uh sprites you can find them in Phoenix. They're sort of, uh, scattered about in a number of different places. Uh, There's, you know, other Chicago gardens now have one sprite that is uh, still there. So you can imagine that uh, they were carried away as totems of prosperity, but without all hundred of them in Wright's special geometrical design, they don't uh, produce the magic that uh, Wright had hoped that they would.
0: Right. And so they don't prop up the entire economy anymore, but they may be well worth getting a hold of, especially if you want to do... Uh, money-related magic, which of course is one of the main points of magic is to get money, Mm -hmm. Um, so that might be something that the uh, player characters are seeking to do uh, then or now, and I guess we'll have to leave for uh, some other future hypotheticals segment, uh, what other installation came in after World War II to become the mystical prop of uh, the return of American prosperity, but uh, at the moment since we've uh, talked about this thing and made it weird it's time for us to head on out uh see what uh, this exciting commercial uh, coming at us is and even more so what's on the other side of that The Best of Ask the is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled... and six-guns role-playing game,
1: Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish?
0: Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that.
1: That's the best of Astvigeln on drive through. Stop the man from tearing down this podcast by joining such beloved Patreon backers as Kevin J. Maroney, Louis R. Evans, Noel Warford, Pedro Garcia,
0: and Jan Zaleski.
1: The whirr of the projector, or the not whirr of the digital projector, the stabbing beam of light, the smell of popcorn, and whatever that is between the seats, welcome us once more into the cinema hut. But oh my goodness, today in the cinema hut we're not having a movie, Robin. There's there's a podium up there in front of the curtain. Maybe is a, is it a film scout? No, it's just it's just our old buddy Robin. Robin is going to tell us about cinema. And specifically, I think inspired by your recent sad, parting, old yeller style leaving of the uh, the Toronto International Film Festival to its own uh, meretricious devices. Well,
0: yes, I'm not going to shoot the film festival in the head because it has hydrophobia. Right. Yeah. (laughs) This is more like Shane. Shane is going is leaving the film festival
1: behind. Right. So the film festival is is a is a small town where you have uh, murdered all the bad people. Excellent. Much better metaphor. Anyhow, when we talked about uh, the Toronto Film Festival uh, after your final appearance there or virtual appearance there, you promised us a breakdown on the nature of arthouse cinema, not just then, but even more so now and why it is that uh, you don't necessarily have to be squatched into the Scotiabank Theater to see great cinema now the way that you may be used to a couple of few years ago, right?
0: Right. Uh, And so I want to look back over uh, what the festival circuit has done for films and uh, festivals uh, like TIFF, perhaps especially TIFF, have created a situation where they are no longer necessary. They've uh, done uh, enough of their mission of uh, spreading the uh, love of Art House International Cinema that uh, the headline is, this is not a sad thing, this is... These films have never been more available now in the streaming age. And with that, there have been a lot of changes over time that ultimately mean that you don't have to live in the biggest city in your country, which just also happens to have a film festival that's situated at the right time, that grows like Topsy over a period of decades and go at it uh, like a maniac for its entire length to see interesting, cool films from all around the world, because when I first started going to the festival in the mid 80s, it was the beginning point of the life cycle of a film uh, that people wanted to, you know, it was not a big mainstream film, might be from Iran, might just be an independent uh, film that nobody knows if there's an audience for. Uh, It might be part of a commercial cinema in another country that people are not wired into elsewhere uh, or wired into in uh, the Anglo world. And so over time, the festival introduced uh, Hong Kong cinema to people and Bollywood and also uh, local art cinemas like the Taiwan new cinema. But at the time, these were the only places really to to see this stuff. This is the VHS era. And now we've gone through many different platforms for distribution uh, from VHS to DVD, which made it worth owning movies. So a little specialty, companies cropped up to you know, run off 2,000 copies of Soul on a string. Now, however, those same companies are providing streaming content to all sorts of different platforms. And so the end of the life cycle is different. And the beginning of the life cycle is different because it used to be that you would drop your film into a festival and see what happened. And so something like uh, you know, Bad Lieutenant it's like, oh, this, it's Abel Farrar, he's made these exploitation movies, and last year he made a gangster movie, and here's a movie at a film festival, what? And you would sit down, and it would be Bad Lieutenant, and your jaw would unhinge from your uh, face, and you would walk out stunned and dizzied afterwards, amazed by what you'd seen. Well, these days, the festival circuit is well along in the life cycle of a film, so that It's already been promoted heavily. It's got its sales agents in place. People have been scouting its existence ever since it was announced in the trade papers a year previously. The critics kind of already know about it. People aren't going to be surprised anymore. And so uh, it is much more likely to show up with distribution already attached. And in this case, that distribution includes not only theatrical, but again, uh, streaming. And these days it might even be a pretty tight window between theatrical and streaming. And of course, the epidemic has uh, collapsed that uh, window uh, even more. So the need to uh, track down these uh, these films is less. Now, we still are not at a point where we have 100% long tail, where any film that ever plays in any festival, that you can be absolutely guaranteed that you're going to be able to uh, at least rent it Uh, as a streaming title or have it show up on a subscription service but we're getting closer and closer to that the stuff showing up on prime just as part of their free subscription let alone rental is often you know really surprisingly uh, obscure and great if you uh, know how to hunt for it so the trick then if you're interested in these sort of off the beaten path films is to you know pay attention or to pay attention to someone else who's paying attention for example uh, someone who posts his capsule reviews every week uh, as part of a text feature, as part of uh, his Patreon for his gaming podcast. So there's there's still a research cost of, of finding this stuff a lot of the time. But then on the other hand, international cinema has never been more mainstream. So, uh, you know, Parasite won big at the Oscars. And right now, even at this moment, the biggest television program in the world, including in the English speaking world, is a South Korean series that is a take on the running man and the hunger games, the squid game. And when I first started going to the festival in the eighties, the idea of, of that was unbelievable that that would be mainstream everywhere. And that's a incredible sort of democratization of global culture. We're getting back to the space where we were during the silent era where uh, films from all over played all over. And now thanks to the uh, options of, you, you can pick your subtitling or your dubbing on streaming services, whatever you want. People are, are, are watching things that they wouldn't have been watching even like five, six years ago.
1: Now, I, I want to push back a little bit against your generic theses, all of which I think are broadly true. But, for example, the cost to finding either a smaller domestic film or a film that is from another country but is not part of that other country's preferred export is still pretty high. And I think specifically, if you go to any of the regional film festivals in America, you're going to go, you know, to Seattle or Twin Cities or Austin or wherever, and you're going to see movies that are never going to have even gotten up to Telluride or to Tribeca or to Toronto or wherever because they're regional. And they're, you know, they're either the, the guy's too poor to have put it out or it just doesn't have that, you know, national interest. No one in Belgium cares about uh, this business in, you know, you know, Idaho. And so your ability to see smaller, more local creators is still, I think, dependent to an extent that the, you know, the Netflixification, the streamification has not yet lifted all those boats, I guess I want to say, or if it has, um, you said, you know, oh, it's just that easy to hunt it down in Amazon Prime, said like someone who has never done a browse on Amazon Prime in his life. Um, Amazon Prime is a job of work to look for things in. I look
0: every single day on a site called Just Watch, uh, which tells you everything that drops. Yes, Mm -hmm. you still have to do uh, research to find this stuff. That is still absolutely the cost of things.
1: And I would argue that uh, a lot of smaller films – are not going to rise to the level of many, of many researchers and that you are going to have to, or you not have to, but if you like that, what did I just watch gobsmacking joy? You can still get that from regional releases in regional film festivals.
0: Right. I'm not saying don't go to film festivals, right?
1: Yeah. I'm saying that
0: more people have more access right. than yes. ever before.
1: And then the other uh, thing is uh, my example of uh, Sharam Mokri, who makes genre films in Iran and the Iranian film establishment kind of doesn't want to admit he exists. They are much happier with the Kairostami school of, of Iranian French new wave and hey, good for them, but there's more strings to your bow. So Mokri literally was one of those. I saw it at Chicago or technically at home, but as part of Chicago, my jaw fell open and there, I, you know, I, I read everything in English that was available on him on the internet the next day, and it was not a lot.
0: Right. But then his film that was a big breakthrough for you was last year's Chicago Film Festival. So right. yeah. That could easily show up next month or next year as part of a uh, singly or as part of a retrospective on uh, – it could be just dropped randomly onto Prime, or it could be on other services like MUBI, that's M-U-B-I, yeah. or uh, Canopy with a K, which is the library yeah. – system Mm -hmm. one so and and we're still in the early stages of how how these
1: changes are are making going
0: to shake out um there's also though a change in the incentive structure for uh films that hit the festival circuit compared to the mid-80s where the thing then was to have a radical bold auteur vision to have films that had a stamp of personality on them, where you walked into a the world of that director each time you sat down in front of his uh, films. And the reason for that was uh, Jim Jarmusch was Stranger Than Paradise. And that ushered in a whole movement of different directors with very strong filmmaking personalities, uh, whether we're talking uh, Spike Lee or Aki Karismaki in, in Finland or uh, Leo Carra in France. Or there were People are looking at Hal Hartley, Witt Stillman, a whole generation of people. Uh, Often the thing to do was to have highly verbal films where they were about uh, the dialogue, but also they were uh, because the
1: the, the script is uh, the cheapest thing you can get in an independent film, because if you're writing it, it's free.
0: Exactly. Now there's been a turn against that toward a, uh, something that is more uh, visually driven, but also, more kind of a generic art film style. And this is where we get to the, uh, the lamentable Loachification in which <laughs> the model now for a lot of auteurist international cinema is a deeply realist style of filmmaking inspired by the British filmmaker Ken Loach and uh, developed sort of a kind of also there's a stream of Taiwan new cinema where things are allowed to be kind of slower and realer. And those two things have come together to create Uh, A filmmaking style that goes all around the world, that gets enough funding to get a film made for the festival circuit, but is very much trying not to have a stylization or a a filmic identity or really much in the way of artifice at all. Now, I'm not saying that's bad. I'm saying I only want to see so many of the good ones in that style every year uh, (laughs) and also that the whole point of having a strong personality is to of gone out the window because the goal really is to hop out of the festival circuit because it's very hard to make a living as an uh, obscure auteur with a strong uh, style, but rather to create a calling card for yourself that then gets you hired to the big leagues. And so an example of a director who did realist films in that style that were, I think, more than a couple of cuts above the usual uh, was Chloe Zhao, And uh, she made The Rider and uh, then went on to Nomadland, which became a big deal. And now she's got a Marvel movie coming out in in a few months. And so the objective is not to have such a strong stamp that you can't then be absorbed into the system of either mainstream filmmaking or of commercial television making. Because if you make something as distinct as Karismaki or Hartley, someone who's hiring for the next big serialized thing that might be from Denmark, might be from Korea, might be from uh, the UK, wherever, that's going to be, well, uh, can you fit into our house style? So that the generation of auteurs uh, that came up in the 80s is not being followed by another generation, but rather a generation that uh, reacts to them, also in part because those people Made a Jim Jarmusch-style hole in filmmaking and filled it. So yeah, there's, right. Jim Jarmusch is still making Jim Jarmusch films. Leo Carra is still making. All those people are. Uh, some of them have found it too difficult to fund their films. So, but even like someone like Michael Amarita is kind of plugging away under the radar, doing stuff in his distinctive style. Whereas you know the the new filmmakers are sort of uh, herded toward realism, and then they do a bank shot into the commercial. Now that doesn't mean that I dislike Ken Loach, but I'm frustrated by the fact that everyone is trying to do Ken Loach, and of course Ken Loach is not a new filmmaker. He's no, he started in, in the 70s, the late right? late sixties uh, and seventies, yeah. and so that sense of discovery at, at uh, film festivals has gone away too, because it's like, oh, here's another film in this style that's being made in this way, and I'm sure in a little while we'll maybe we'll have a reaction to that, or maybe the you know the the streaming universe will continue to uh, have the same incentives for a long time to come. We don't know.
1: That said, who wouldn't want to see Ken Loach's damage control? I mean, (laughs) yes, the 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 guys who pick up the wreck after all the superhero fights uh, in the Marvel universe. I think I would love – that That would be the Ken Loach movie I would actually sign up for. (laughs) Yeah,
0: the one person who's not going to try to bank shot out of Ken Loach's style into Hollywood is Ken Loach himself.
1: (laughs) Right. And the other thing about film communities is, as you say, with South Korea, many of them are connected to really thriving, really nationalist in the best way, popular culture uh, industries. And so, South Korea made, you know, apparently the cultural decision – to just make really great genre stuff and then did it. I don't know if uh, the, the South Korean film bosses were all looking at Hong Kong and saying, why, we can do that and not get absorbed by communist China. Let's do that. It and was a
0: funding model in part that they yeah. uh, created a way for people to micro invest in the film industry. And so young people started buying chunks of uh, movies. And in order to make that work, they had to make movies that young people with money actually wanted to see.
1: There we go. Similarly, I guess the way that Bollywood had to make movies that mobsters wanted to see, since that was their funding model. (laughs)
0: Right, And there's a long Korean film uh, tradition and a bunch of the classic early films of Korea you can now watch for free on YouTube, uh, brought to you by the Korean Film Archive. Uh, But that was the thing that exploded their cinema into something that they were deliberately modeling on. Hong Kong, but also they were, uh, they knew if regular folks were chipping in money, they wanted uh, movies that regular folks uh, actually want to see.
1: Yeah, but you mentioned Hong Kong martial arts and then Bollywood as two things that Tiff brought to you. And I think my case is an interesting parallel in that I absolutely got Hong Kong from first the Chicago International Film Festival and then the Doc Film Group on the University of Chicago campus that runs its own film program. And they programmed a ton of Hong Kong films, basically as a response to the festival architecture of it. Bollywood I found literally because Bollywood had begun seeping into enough pop culture that I knew it was there. And when Sheila was looking because she was broken hearted when Hong Kong was turned over to the communists. And she said the last national cinema without irony is dead and so she went looking for a cinema without irony and found bollywood she did not she is not a festival goer she is not a reader of kahirdu cinema or variety or any of those she just knew that bollywood was about dancing and gunplay and said that sounds like a movie to me let's start watching bollywood films and because chicago has a large indian population we were able to see a ton of them in the theater but Again, there's, you know, streaming channels for Bollywood uh, right now that you can uh, watch Bollywood movies on. And there's
0: a ton of them on Prime. It's right, like yeah. Like they drop all the constantly on, on mm-hmm.
1: Prime. And so the, the ability, even just between the 90s and the 2000s, for me to move from a festival fed ecosystem into a, uh, you know, the proto streaming or the proto uh, everywhere model, it interests me because that's That's what Bollywood always was to me, because the Chicago Fest, God bless it, is a a little in love with the French and the Italians, uh, not least because the French and Italian consulates make sure to provide lots of movies to it, but they don't necessarily look to the exuberant uh, national cinema cultures as much as they might, so... Finding that was not a festival uh, equation for me. It was the opposite of that. So that model that you're talking about, I think it, you can go back and and see it begin to happen even maybe as early as the great videotape uh, generation that I think spread Hong Kong films throughout sort of the middle of the country in a way that uh, nothing else did, right? That that was all, you know, video stores back when those were a thing.
0: Right. And so that parallel way to get films to people, of course, has has existed uh, forever but now uh you just have to uh pop on your tv you bring up netflix and if you've watched a couple of bollywood movies uh forever uh as valerie's account can attest it will tell you about the new <laughs> one <laughs> <laughs> and often when you bring them up it'll say a netflix production you know they're investing in film all over the world they're revitalizing japanese cinema because one of the problems japanese films have had for a long time is their the budgets are incredibly low and it looks like it. And so, right. you know, the, the, and great their labor costs of,
1: are high, unlike in India.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, the, uh, the tradition of, you know, Kurosawa and Oshima and all these other people, it's like, well, you can do it, but it, you got to do it on a, for a couple of nickels. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Kiyoshi Kurosawa has found a way to make that work for him. But now Netflix is gone, well, people like Japanese movies and not just Japanese people, but people in all of our different territories. So let's drop a bunch of money on a lavish production. So, you know they're they kind of they're replacing a toho and nikatsu in terms of the, the the very beginning of the film's life cycle is when someone ponies up the dough right uh, and so uh, things have have uh, really uh, you know changed in all sorts of ways uh, since then and I thought it would be uh, fun to uh, talk about that but Ken I hear some chronotons clacking so let's get through this commercial and and see uh, exactly what that's all about.
1: Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality.
0: Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax.
1: Doors open to endless Victorian hallways.
0: Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking
1: the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us.
0: And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role playing game, waits for you. In PDF Now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream Planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible
1: Landscapes, also sees the bonus new release, Delta Green Static Protocol, which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main of impossible
0: landscapes and entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static
1: protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing
0: The whirring of time gears and the clanking of chronotons tells Walmart once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This, of course, is the conveyance that our hero uses to go back into history and bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And uh, this time around, however, thanks to estimable patron-backer Ben Vincent, uh, we're going to talk about something I don't know, possibly you've already fixed? Because, he says, in 1946, David Snell of the Atlantic Constitution Wrote, While he was a CID agent at the end of World War II, he interviewed a Japanese officer who claimed to have observed Japan's first nuclear bomb test in a Korean harbor during 1945. There aren't really any corroborating accounts. Is this a failed bailout from Time Incorporated? What really happened? Now, uh, it's the Ordo Veritatis that specializes in the bailout. Uh, yeah. You don't need to like, conceal
1: what happened. You can change what I happened. Just make them unhappy. That's the much, much cleaner way to veil things out.
0: Yeah. So, Ken, was there, at least in one timeline, where uh, Japan uh, had the bomb, tested it, and then didn't get around to using it?
1: Well, uh, that is the discussion that David Snell launched into existence in 1946, and then the U.S. government clamped down on very, very hard. Uh, there is a book that I have owned and loved for a long time called Japan's Secret War, Japan's Race Against Time to Build Its Own Atomic Bomb by a guy named Robert K. Wilcox. And it contains every fact and a good few more about the Japanese uh, nuclear program. And Wilcox structures it as, you know, in, in deference to Wilcox, he lays out sort of the claim. And then he says, here's what I was able to find that demonstrates this might be the case. Not a lot. <laughs> and uh, his argument is not a lot does not mean, oh, it didn't happen. His argument is not a lot means the U.S. government went through and cleaned up all references to the Japanese A-bomb. Yeah, speaking of bailouts, the U.S. government does do bailouts. It's in the bailout business. So I guess to go back to the beginning, the argument being that uh, Japan had super good physicists, a guy named Yoshio Nishina, who was pals with Niels Bohr. And he, at one point, said, maybe we should look into nuclear fission as a thing. And the Japanese military said, well, can we make it blow up? And he says, yeah, absolutely. And so he gets... (laughs)
0: It is often the question the military asks.
1: He gets put in charge of uh, a Japanese nuclear fission project at the Riken Institute, and then in a different laboratory in Kyoto. So Nishina is doing this, Nishina after the war said that he, much like uh, Heisenberg after the war, said, oh, no, I knew that we shouldn't win. I was leading them down bad trails. That's what I was doing. Nishina, I think, has a better argument than Heisenberg does, if only because no one taped Nishina after the war saying, I can't believe they did it, those stupid Americans. I'm so mad. But uh, Nishina says he was basically just trying to keep all of his physicists from being drafted, and that's why he kept the program going. The Navy perhaps sensed some of that because they had two other programs, one called B-Research and one called FGO. and both of those programs were doing their own uh, nuclear testing. B-Research was a, a sort of a book uh, project where they just examined all the math and they said, well, it would take literally billions of dollars and years to build an A-bomb. We don't even think America can do that, so give it up. FGO was attempting to separate uranium, that was their big job, and FGO may or may not have gotten close, and that is, I think, the core of the question, because FGO was going around building separating tubes under a guy named uh, Bunsaku Arakatsu, and with a guy who was the first Japanese physicist to receive a Nobel, Hideki Yukawa, and so, again, we're talking A-list brains, the Japanese physics community- certainly as good as the american physics community before the war and uh admittedly they didn't have the advantage of all the german jews and hungarian jews coming to america but still they did a lot of good stuff uh they probably were producing more heavy water than we like to think the argument in wilcox's book is that they found their source of uranium in north korea in the black sands and there are certainly tables that were deciphered by the magic decipherments that said, uranium enrichment proceeding, everything's good here. Uh, How's the war with you? The question is, did they get as far as building a device? Now, the downside is that the factory that they were using in Korea at Hongnam, called Konan at the time, was in the north. And so it, first of all, got seized by the Soviets after the war. It was, in fact, the last battle between the Japanese military and the Soviet military was in November of 1945, well after the surrender. So, someone at the Hungnam Institute didn't want to get caught, but that might have just meant they were poisoning all their Korean workers. The Soviets take it over. They clamp a giant security team on it. They don't let the Americans in. Wilcox suggests- Because, that, of course,
0: the Soviets at this point do not have a bomb. So, if there's a right. bomb lying around, they might want to get a hold of it.
1: They want it. And they certainly want the raw research. And they certainly want the uranium. that they dug the uranium out of North Korea and shipped it to Moscow. That's, again, on the record. And so, the- argument being that if Klaus Fuchs was feeding the Soviets American nuclear research, we know that there was a Spanish spy organization on the West Coast that may or may not have penetrated Los Alamos, and so they may have had some of the same advantages, the Japanese, as uh, the Americans. And this is, I think, where Wilcox gets a little out of, over his skis. The, the presence of a spy ring does not equal the presence of atomic secrets in Hung Nam. So, you know, this is sort of an area of question. There is no gigantic crater in Hung Nam that no one can explain. But of course, they say, oh, they tested it at sea, which I guess works if it's the Navy that's building your bomb. So the question remains not open in that, no, it probably didn't happen, but there's enough smoke there to make a pretty entertaining book and a number of excellent role playing game campaigns. Right.
0: Now, as the person with the time machine who made it not happen, right. what was the timeline? like before you undid that and how did you undo it
1: well in the timeline that we're discussing the japanese did in fact have a leak out of los alamos that let the b group find out that yes it was possible the b group then puts forward a report that says it is possible but it depends on getting the uranium separated that that's the core job that's what gets fgo going fgo sorts out the uranium and builds a bomb and in 1945 they have you know one device that they test they then have the capacity to build more devices and they wind up getting you know again captured by the uh by the russians but the russians wind up with working nuclear weapons in 1945 as opposed to having to wait until 1949 when they actually got them and the downhill effects there are not Atomic bomb, uh, use becomes general in the Pacific War, which the Japanese basically did not have the industrial base to ever do. There was a, uh, there was a line in Wilcox's book where the guy in charge of the U.S. Alsace, which was the committee that went around to the Axis looking for atomic research, they said, well, we know that the uh, physical planet Oak Ridge is half the size of Rhode Island. So if you don't see something half the size of Rhode Island, they probably didn't build an atomic bomb. That is a bit of American exceptionalism, but it's a pretty good rule of thumb is you have to have a
0: disrespect for Rhode Island, frankly.
1: Yes. Well, I mean, Rhode Island, as you, as, as is well known, has um, been a thorn in the side of uh, the Oak Ridge National Laboratory for years, but we don't have time to get into that. Um, so the facilities, the largest facility that the Japanese used for nuclear research was at EFCO in Korea. It, It was an enormous complex. Of factories just all up and down the coastline that way so maybe not half the size of rhode island but half the size of okinawa maybe who can say so the soviets get the bombs and then the soviets are able to use the bombs a demonstration shot means that when stalin says we'll take finland truman does not feel like he can threaten nuclear retaliation over that uh likewise iran so stalin picks up bigger chunks of uh europe In the in the shakedown of the Cold War than in our timeline. Now, again, Finland, that's a horrible crime because the good Finns don't deserve Soviet domination, but it's Soviet control over Iran that really throws the Cold War for a loop in the 1970s as the OPEC uh, crisis nears its breaking point. Um, United States support for Israel is even less appreciated in the Arab world, in the world where we are the only thing keeping the Soviets out of Saudi Arabia, and so the Arab monarchies fall apart faster and more dramatically in the late 60s, early 70s, so instead of having millenarian Shiism in charge of Iran, you have basically al-Qaeda-style hardcore Sunni regimes in charge of Iraq, Syria, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia and the Emirate states. And that, of course, leads to all manner of hell letting out for breakfast, not least because, given the Soviet nuclear threat, the chances of building a bomb to take out Jerusalem go way up. So, you don't have a nuclear exchange in the Pacific War, what you do is you have a nuclear exchange in the Middle East, and that is something that I was told, under no circumstances we permit. So, go back in time, and the two things, uh, you can either shut off the Spanish channel into los alamos which is easy enough spanish spies in washington state are cold and sad uh, they enjoy the occasional Carajillo and uh, a sympathetic ear to cry on and the other thing is simply get the japanese navy to start yet another project of centrifugal separation that throws the whole system off and wastes re- uh, resources that of course was the great secret advantage we have over the nazi weapon program is that all their weapon programs were Jealously guarded by dictatorial little fiefs, so you go back. There's another project at uh, Riken called the Nigo Project that's set up by the army, and it's the army that's arguing with the navy. And because the army in Japanese politics weirdly has the whip hand, the army gets all of the good uranium, and so the uh, army Nigo uh, project has their Clusius tube separator. They're very, very excited. They're making deals with the Germans to get uranium. The German ship carrying uranium, the German submarine, surrenders to the Allies instead of delivering the uranium. So we've had this whole army project that existed just to sideline the Japanese Navy project that suddenly runs out of uranium. And also, it gets caught on fire during a firebomb raid in March of 1945. So, sorry, Japan. Japan. No atomic weapons for you. No atomic weapons for the Russians in 1945, and no atomic weapons for the Saudi radicals in 1969. There we are. Too bad. Well,
0: that's I, I think goes to show really what our Patreon backers are are getting uh, for their money is that yeah you know a, a timeline with no nuclear exchange in the Middle East is is a pretty good value, frankly. For uh,
1: yeah, I mean, obviously, past performance is no guarantee of future earnings, but. You know, you got to you got to give me credit there. Unnuked.
0: And of course, scenario wise, you can just insert the player characters, presumably not time travelers or time travelers if you're playing Time Watch or a similar game into that wave of intrigue around making sure that those uh, things happen. So that's uh, uh, pretty much ready to go right there. And uh, you know who else is ready to go? Uh, you and I can go right out of this podcast only to re-enter it a mere week from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors Atlas Games, Pelgrane Press, Ask Fagown, Arc Dream, Dark Tower, and Pro Fantasy Software.
1: Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com/cananrobin.
0: Stop time enemies from bombing this podcast by throwing in with such illustrious backers
1: as Andrea Coletta, Derek McMullen, Jacob Borsma, Mike Mike Merles and Rich Ranallo wear this show or
0: drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com user slash Ken
1: Robin put on your best faces with our latest design ready for my close-up Mr. Pickman
0: on Twitter he's at Kenneth Height and he's
1: at Robin D. Laws see you next time and
0: once again uh, we will talk about stuff